And for those of you that are able, please stand and join me in the reading of God's word from Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So praise is not just something that you and I are called to do, praising God. It is something that is good for us. If you were here last week when we looked at Psalms 111 and 112, you'll know that was what we saw, that, that not only is praise our calling, but praise is what makes us wise. It, it's what opens our minds to reality more fully. And our psalm this Sunday simply continues where that left off. It, knowing that we need to praise, it is good to praise, Psalm 113 calls us to praise, tells us how, and also tells us why we should praise. It's, it's very straightforward. Sometimes when we're reading scripture, we go, what is this telling me? Well, this one we don't have to struggle. How does it start? Praise the Lord. Or hallelujah is the you know, what Hebrew. If you ever wonder what hallelujah means, that's praise the Lord. Who should praise the Lord? Well, it says right after, praise, O servants of the Lord. That's us. Servants of the Lord are, are the people of God. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are people who praise God. How, how should we praise? Well, then it says next, praise the name of the Lord. As is often the case in the Old Testament where we see the word Lord, that is a translation of the name Yahweh. When, when Moses met with God at the bush, he asked, what is your name? And God says, my name is Yahweh. And ever after that, God's people had a first name basis relationship with God himself. You know, sometimes it's common uh, to speak of trusting in a higher power or worshiping whatever God you believe in and keeping it kind of generic. That's not the kind of praise that's spoken of here. Praise the name of Yahweh, the one who we know by name, the one who has revealed himself even more fully in the New Testament. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is Jesus. Praise the one true God. Praise the name of the Lord. When should we praise? From this time forth and forevermore. There are times that, that life is glorious, that we are filled with energy, and we should praise God. There are times that our, our health is, is just failing, and life is hard, and we should praise God. Because he continues to be God from, from this time forth forevermore. Praise Yahweh. And, and where should we praise him? From the rising of the sun to its setting the name of the Lord is to be praised. That is, wherever the sun touches is the place that it's appropriate to praise the Lord. There is no specifically 
sacred space, whether we're talking China, or we're talking Australia, or we're talking Africa, or we're talking America, that's where the Lord should be praised. Whether we're talking here in church, or we're talking when we're at work, or we're on the beach, that's where the Lord should be praised. Everywhere, at all times, all the people should praise Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one that we know through Jesus. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. As I said, we know from the outset what this psalm is calling us to. But it doesn't stop there. It also says why. Why, why should we be a people who praise the Lord continually? And the answer that our psalm gives us, one of many answers we could give, is that we have a God who stoops down. We see that in kind of two parts. We see that first as this psalm speaks of the utter, unimaginable greatness of our God. So verses 4 through 6 says, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So there's this language of God being high, high up, and, and, and we should recognize that when the Bible speaks of, of God being high or being in the heavens, it's not speaking geographically. It's not saying that God, if you look, he's way up there. It's, it's speaking metaphorically to help us to, to think in spatial terms of just how much greater our God is than us. So, so if you notice in verse 6, it says, that he looks down on the heavens. In other words, it's not that he just looks down on us and earth. Even the heavens he looks down on. The image is that even when you consider all the stars in the space, this vast cosmic universe, it only comes up to the ankles of our God because he is so great. The very central idea in this section is the question that is asked, who is like the Lord our God? Who, who is like him? What, what can we compare our God to that we can get our minds around who our God is? And the answer is nothing. This is why the second commandment, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, was not to make for yourself an image in the form of anything to represent God. Because no matter what we think of, no matter how great it is, maybe we depict God as, as a massive nuclear explosion, or maybe we depict God as the entire universe, no matter what we try to represent God, it will always fall far, far, far short, and our minds will have shrunk God immeasurably. So in Isaiah 40, which is one of the classic passages that thinks about this, God himself says, to whom are you going to compare me? Who is like me? And he goes through in this, this passage in Isaiah all of the things that we might consider great. Think for a moment about the ocean. Have you ever found yourself at the beach just looking as the waves are coming in? I mean, by the way, the beach, not Lake Michigan. The beach, like, you know, like the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. Have you ever just been on the, on the beach and looked and realized that you, no matter how long you look, you will never see land on the other side? And you just feel small. Or, or maybe, I remember one time I was on the ocean uh, on a whale watch. And there was a huge storm and the waves got high. And even though this wasn't anything like it could be with a hurricane, I felt my smallness and the powerfulness of the ocean. Have you ever felt something like that? 
Isaiah 40 says God can take all of the waters, all of the oceans, and scoop them up, and they are just in the hollow of the palm of his hand. There's no comparison. Or if you think of, of the, the stars in the sky, some of you will probably go on vacations to a place where you can see the stars well, where there's not lots of city lights. And, and sometimes if there's no moon out and you just gaze and you see thousands upon thousands of stars, and if you start thinking about this, about how some of these are thousands upon thousands of light years away, how there's millions upon millions of stars and not just galaxy, but galaxies in this universe. It's so big, and, and yet it says God puts them all in place, and he knows them all by name, and I think we can imagine, just like a kid is looking at his Lego creation, so God looks at the entire universe. It is that small compared to the greatness of God. There is, there's no comparison. Or we think of the power that we see in, in the military, the, the American aircraft carriers and missiles and, and the forces throughout this world and how strong it seems and yet it says that God, he can just blow an entire empire's crumble like that. To what will you compare God in terms of his greatness? There is no comparison. He is so far above. And, and when we try to start thinking of who God is, really try to imagine our brains realize that we cannot possibly comprehend. I mean, have you ever tried to think of the, the agelessness, the eternality of God? I mean, sometimes when we go visit places, it's cool to go to like a, a revolutionary war site in Boston. It feels so old. But then we say that and the Europeans scoff at us. And they say, you know, where I'm from, you have ancient Ro Roman ruins that are thousands of years old. And then geologists scoff at them and say, hey, these fossils are way older than that, but none of them, none of them compare to God. You go a billion years back, and you have God. And a billion years more, and a billion years more, and there is no time when God was not. How, how can that be? Our minds cannot understand that, because he's incomparable. Or have you ever thought about what it is to be God in terms of how he sees things? Jennifer will tell you that if I'm on the phone and if anyone talks to me while I'm on the phone, like, I short-circuit. I cannot multitask at all. I, my brain, like, fries and I'm like, ugh. That's two conversations. God has prayers of millions upon millions of people pray to him simultaneously and it is effortless for him to hear all of this. Meanwhile, he's holding the universe together, every atom, every star. You know, sometimes we talk about how, you know, this person plays checkers but this person plays chess. Well, we play checkers and God runs the universe. That there is no comparison. Or, or the emotional life of God, that for all eternity, he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immensely delighting in each other in perfect love, without any need, overflowing in joy and satisfaction. This God is, is immeasurably great. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've heard from some of you that, that it is something that, that actually lives up to the hype. That when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you see what is before you, the miles and miles, it feels so vast and you feel so small. And I want to say, when we begin to truly reflect on who God is, that is how we should be feeling. 
that he is so vast. He is so great. And we are so small. I, I feel like we've kind of lost that in our culture, haven't we? That in our, in our desire to always see through everything and be ironic and penetrate greatness, we have lost the conception of awe. We have sought to maybe make God more manageable, shrunk him to be a little bit less other to us, kind of a big version of us who kind of needs us as a friend for him not to be lonely, and that's just not it. Who can you compare to God? There is no one. There is nothing. He is so, so, so far beyond anything we can possibly comprehend. And so he's worthy of our praise. But that actually is not where this psalm is taking us. When it's trying to focus us on why we should praise God, it actually says, here's what you really should understand. This God who is so great, what does he do in his greatness? He looks down on the lowest of the low. We're already beginning to see that in, the, in verse 6. Who looks down on the heavens and the earth? But then he gives us two images of just how low God goes in his love. First images, the first image is in verses 7 and 8. He raises the poor with the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap, or you could just as easily translate that last a couple of words, the trash heap. For Time immemorial, the poorest of the poor often set their homes near the dumps. In fact, you can even see that now, for example, in Guatemala City, there is a huge dump in Guatemala City. It's 40 acres. That's about 15 city blocks. And thousands of people spend their entire lives at that dump. It used to be that they would live at the dump. Now they've been removed, but still, their entire livelihood is picking through the muck the garbage, the smelly filth, and finding just a few things that they can salvage for just a pittance. Now, the point of this image of the trash heap is not just how little they have, but how little they are valued. Those of the trash heap, they, they get no police oversight. There is no crime stopping. There's no health care. They are the forgotten of the forgotten. They are those who are considered completely insignificant. Their lives do not matter to most people. Think of this. Just a few weeks ago, I found out that Anthony Bourdain died. I, I don't know who Anthony Bourdain is. At least I didn't. And I know everyone else does, but I did not. But I know he's important because his death was in the news. Who will know when one of these people, one of these thousands working, living on the trash heap dies? Some of them have no relatives. Who will care? Who will mourn? They are considered utterly insignificant by this world. But not by God. It says he sees the poor. He lifts them up. We're told he makes them sit with princes with the princes of his people. I wonder if when the psalm was being written, the psalmist was thinking of the story of Joseph. You know his story how after he got sold into slavery, he ended up being imprisoned, and he was in this, basically this, this pit of a prison that even the prisoners have forgotten. No one in the world knew or cared about him in that moment, except God. 
And God stooped down and showed his favor and lifted Joseph up so that he was at the level of the princes, the second in command in all of Egypt. That is our God. We see in verse 9 another image. It says, he gives the barren woman a home. That, that word, barren, while weighty to us, is far weightier to people in that day. In that day, your honor, your security, your prosperity all came through children. And so to be a woman, a wife in a family who could not have kids was of the deepest heartbreak. And not only that, for both the wife and according to society, she was viewed as not having worth. She had nothing to offer the society would have thought. Some of you might remember the story of Hannah in the beginning of 1 Samuel. She and another woman are married to the same man, to Elkanah, and, and the other woman is having children, and she is not able to. She is infertile, and the other woman mocks her ruthlessly, and she feels worthless and forgotten and utterly insignificant, and she cries. She cries out to God in her helplessness. And what does God do? God hears her prayer and, and gives her a child, gives her Samuel. And you know what she does after she has been seen, after her prayers have been heard, after she has been restored? She sings this psalm, amongst other things. In fact, she, she sings verse 7. Our God raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Because she understood what this psalm is saying. This psalm is not just saying that God only cares about the poor and the infertile. We know that's not true. All of scripture speaks about God's love that is far broader than that. And it's also not saying that God always brings the poor and lifts them up. That he always in this life gives children to the infertile. We know from experience that that's not true. That in this broken world there are sometimes for reasons that we will never fully understand that God allows the poor to remain destitute. And that God allows the infertile to remain childless. Now, what, what this psalm is, is telling us and inviting us to sing about is not what God always does, but who God always is. Of what kind of God we have. That he is the God who is so great and so glorious, and yet he is a God who stoops so far down and sees the insignificant, the lowly, and he cares. Those who sung this song in the Old Testament knew this. This song actually is the beginning of kind of a, a six-psalm series of songs that would be sung during the Passover. All Israelites would sing this psalm at the beginning of the Passover, and the reason is because they realized this psalm was about them. That when they were in Egypt, when they were rejected by Pharaoh and made slaves. They were just the refuse of the world. They had no value in the world's eyes, and yet God saw them and rescued and lifted them up. That's what this psalm is about, that God is the God who stoops down and sees those who have nothing to offer, and he rescues them. It's our story as well. There's this... Uh, 
wonderful moment in 1 Corinthians where Paul clearly feels the need to deflate some egos. He speaks to the Corinthian church and he says, you need to remember what you were. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were important. Not many of you were rich by the world's standards. In other words, let's be honest, guys. You were all a bunch of losers. And he says, it's not in spite of that. It's because of that. God wanted to show in this world that nothing that the world thinks is that significant is importance to God. All of us are lowly. And so he takes the lowest of the low and he lifts them up because that's the kind of God that he is. He's the God who stoops down. I mean, the classic passage of this is is Philippians 2 where it speaks of how Jesus, though he is in very nature God, he is glorious, he is eternal, he is beyond our imagination, yet he did not grasp onto that reality, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant, becoming one of us, going even to the cross. He, he stooped down to rescue us. I keep on repeating this because this is actually something that I think is counterintuitive to us. Whether we realize it or not, so often when we show kindness, when we show love, there is a certain degree of self-interest in it. We like to spend time with and welcome the people who make us feel better. We like to spend time with those who are enjoyable, with those who are entertaining, with those who clearly like us, with those who have something to offer us. That's our nature. But God doesn't do this. God has zero self-interest. There is absolutely nothing the poor, the infertile, any of us have to offer God. God is so far above, and yet he sees us, and he stoops down, and he pays attention to us, and he loves us for no other reason than the simple fact that he is a gracious God who condescends to care for us. These truths that are being brought together in, these, in this psalm are two truths that we, we have such a hard time holding together. Most of the time, I think, we can hold onto one, but it's usually at the expense of the other. So there are probably some of you in this congregation who have a, a deep and growing awareness of the holiness and the greatness and the vastness of our God, and yet it is so hard for you to actually believe that he knows you that he smiles upon you, that he numbers the hairs on your head, and he is involved in every detail of your life in love. And there are others of you who probably have, have accepted the idea to some degree that God loves you, that he pays attention to you, and yet to make sense of that, You have shrunk God so that he's just kind of a larger version of you and not the glorious almighty God of the universe. But if we, if we can, if we can take these two truths and hold on to them at the same time, that will, that will bring about two things, I think. It will bring about first what I call a godly confusion. David shows that he has this. When, when God makes this promise to him in 2 Samuel, David says, who am I that you should do this for me? 
who am I that you, the God of the universe, should do this? He even says that later in a psalm. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you would care anything about us? And that should be the cry of our hearts. Who are we, God, that you would love us? And yet, secondly, even as we find ourselves so confused, it also fills our heart with praise. That the almighty God of the universe, for whom the stars only come up to his ankles, knows our favorite breakfast cereal, knows our dreams, knows our aches, and cares. How? How can we not praise? Now, before I close, there's, there's just one more application that I think this, this psalm pushes us to. See, what this psalm says is that, that God values those who are not valued by our world. That, that God pays attention to the vulnerable, the weak, and those that our world considers insignificant. And if that is our God and we worship him, then that is our calling as well, isn't it? And so as we close, I think it is appropriate for us to think, who are those people in this world that have been treated as having less significance, whose lives matter less to the world around us? And the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that we could extend quite a list. We can think of the more than two million people who right now are incarcerated in our country and forgotten by the rest of society. We could think of the millions of elderly who are disconnected from any family connections and forgotten. We can think of the countless who are struggling with mental health issues and are just kept away in mental health institutions so that we don't have to think about them. Our world has said they don't matter, but God says they matter to me. Or we can think of how even just the effects of segregation, even in our city, how just a few miles away in a place like Englewood, there is poverty that is beyond our ability to comprehend, that we don't even ever have to go through drive nearby, we don't have to think about, we don't have to grieve over because we can stay completely isolated from it, but God sees. Or we could think of the refugees, the undocumented aliens in our culture, in our country, those seeking asylum. Look, I, I want to make myself clear here when we're talking about that specific topic. I recognize, and I think hopefully all of us with wisdom recognize, that the issues of public policy are incredibly complicated. And it is absolutely important that there needs to be laws, that there can be a just way of immigration, that it can be done orderly, that it can be done in a way that protects both citizens and immigrants alike. I am not trying to oversimplify something that's amazingly complicated. But, but what this passage tells us is that our God cares about each and every one of those who are refugees and who are immigrants and those who are seeking asylum. That he does not value them any less than he values us. And so neither should we. I think we can agree that our God has compassion 
that he has compassion on those right now who are undocumented in this country and are afraid, having lived here for decades. I think we can agree that God sees and he cares when refugees have been in camps for year upon year seeking just some form of stability. I think we can agree that God sees and it matters to him when families are being separated. Again, I'm not trying to say what kind of policy we should have. I know that is not my place. I am saying what kind of people we should be. That we who follow a God who sees the lowly, that we also are called to love, to pay attention, for our hearts to break, for us to pray for the least of these who are not least in God's eyes. And as we pray and as we allow the Spirit to lead, to take steps, whatever that looks like, in obedience to our God. Because our God is a God who is yet so great and still looks down so lowly and so compassionately and so graciously on the least because he looked down on you and me. And so he is worthy of our praise. I invite you even now to spend a couple minutes in response to our great God. Maybe it's in confession, maybe it's in praise, but to respond in a time of silent prayer. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a couple minutes' time. Would you please pray silently with me? Father, I am reminded of this moment when Isaiah sees you. And he sees the, these angelic creatures praising you, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as Isaiah begins to just have the slightest awareness of who you are, as he is in your presence, he falls down in fear and says, I am unclean. And Father, in your presence, we are not worthy. We deserve nothing good. We deserve punishment. And yet, you have cleansed us. Your son has died for us. You have rescued us and brought us to yourself. And you care for us. And we cannot possibly fathom. Lord, please fill our hearts with praise. Help us more and more to trust in the reality of your love that we might praise you for every day of our lives with all of our being. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, as we are about to turn to the table, hear, friends, the good news of the gospel from Isaiah and from James. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, 
who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, as those who have humbled ourselves before God in confession, know that through Christ your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.